Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Before we get into our main topic, we want to, I don't know, hold up a glass and toast DP Review, which just announced on the 21st of March, the day we're recording, that they are shutting down after 25 years. And we just had Chris Nichols uh, on the show, who is one half of uh, DP Review TV doing video reviews with Jordan Drake. Um, We've had Jordan Drake on the show, Dan Bracaglia, and we've both written for the site, you, um, a lot more than I have. Um, This is kind of sad. I I noticed in the comments that a lot of people didn't realize it was owned by Amazon. Uh, Now, they say so at a number of places on the site and the footer of the website and other things. It's this Amazon ownership that kept DP Review ad-free in the sense that they had affiliate links to Amazon for everything to discuss, but they didn't have ads, and that made it a really – enjoyable site to visit. Yeah. They they also had some sponsored content, which I actually liked how they did it because it was very clearly marked. This is sponsored content. This company has paid to make this video and then they would do a video about, you know, the latest Sony whatever and they would go shoot on a mountaintop or shoot a wedding or something like that. What strikes me about this is I don't know of any other site offhand that did the sort of in-depth reviewing, you know, digital photography review, that's what DP Review stands for, that did that sort of level of scrutiny on camera gear. And I know that for a lot of people, that's not really what they want. But once you look into buying a new camera or uh, you know, wanting to do check out some new software, you knew that you could go to DP Review and really get the lowdown, like really well tested. So yeah, this is a and big detailed technical testing. Now the forums were often toxic. To be fair, you had lots of people on the forums who knew better than everyone else, and when you have a thousand of them who all know better than everyone else, uh, it could get a little bit hairy, kind of like Reddit and some of the other things. So you tend to ignore the forums, but you could ask obscure questions in the forums and get answers from a lot of knowledgeable people. I don't know how many users they had, regular users, but it was it, it's a pretty popular site. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a victim of Amazon just announced yesterday – that they were going to be uh, laying off, I think, 9,000 more people after the layoffs that they had done. And I mean, you look back at it and I guess it makes sense because it's probably not a huge financial generator for Amazon. But I mean, we're talking about scales where for Amazon, DP review was probably a rounding error. And it's just sad that they're they're just jettisoning good things because also you got to remember because like you said people didn't realize it was owned by Amazon Amazon let them be independent i mean it it was yeah. like this great marriage of content and sales and uh, technology it'll be interesting to see what former dp review people do there's a space in the market now for 
let's say, an existing photography website to build up their reviewing, but they would need people with real testing experience and familiarity with all the brands, and it's not that simple. I think of sites I follow like Petapixel and Shutterbug. They don't have it. They can have a couple of reviews of this and that. They can't review every single lens by every single manufacturer, and maybe DP Review doesn't review everyone, but most of them. They do a lot, and also just that reviewing infrastructure is like probably the second thing that I was thinking about because literally DP Review, I've seen it. They have a massive uh, like closet full of gear and they've got you know test environments all set up. And I think a lot of the other sites, they didn't really need to do that because DP Review was there providing that, that information. And so, I mean – I don't know too much about how Petapixel works, but from my understanding, it's mostly all freelance-generated content and stuff that they pull from some other places. So, you know, I don't think they have the infrastructure there to do this sort of testing. Plus, I mean, everybody knew DP Review, all of the the press contacts, the marketing, like like that whole side of it. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm sure the camera manufacturers are disappointed because they would trust DP Review to give them honest reviews and tests and serious um, serious video reviews with Chris and Jordan, which I, I like to watch. I don't watch a lot of videos on YouTube, but I would watch their videos even for gear that didn't interest me sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't own Nikon or Canon cameras, and sometimes I'd watch their reviews because they just had – they had it down to a science of the right way to do it, what to talk about, not too long, not too short. Um, and Chris in particular, Chris Nichols, has uh, he's very comfortable in front of the camera and you feel like he's talking to you. And that's something that's very difficult to do in that sort of thing. Now, maybe they'll get together and uh, set up a YouTube channel, but uh, we were discussing before the show, in order to monetize a YouTube channel, you have to have a certain number of subscribers, a certain number of minutes of content, and that content... I'm assuming it doesn't belong to them. It depends on what sort of contract they had. Uh, Maybe it does belong to them and it's licensed by DP Review, but that's unlikely. Hey, this is Jeff jumping in real quick while I'm doing the edit on this episode. Shortly after we recorded, Chris and Jordan announced that they will be continuing their TV channel only at, funnily enough, since we were just talking about it, Petapixel. So they're going to be the face of Petapixel TV which I believe is starting up in May. Are we reaching the point where there's no need for a photography website like that, that we need like a smartphone camera review website instead? Uh, Well, I mean, (laughs) I don't know, because here's the problem with the smartphone camera market. Um, And and I I know this being adjacent to the publishing industry. I know that, that books on the iPhone, so the iPhone, the most popular consumer product ever. People who wrote books about the iPhone, the books never really sold because the iPhone has this aura of, well, it's it's not that complicated. And we know that there's all sorts of complications. But to get somebody to go from, I have a smartphone that's easy to use to, I want to buy a book that will show me how to do this, that's a giant leap, especially now with video content and YouTube and all of that. So the sites that are fulfilling that need are things like The Verge and just general technology sites without 
jumping too deep into all of the specifics. So like I I can't see a a smartphone photography review site actually succeeding. Well, there aren't there's not much to review. Are you going to review lenses? I mean, how many lenses are there that clip yeah, onto exactly. your iPhone? Um, how many tripods are there for the iPhone? Yes, you can adapt it to any tripod, but people don't use tripods yeah. with it. You don't use um, soft boxes with an iPhone. You don't use, you know, many of the things we use in cameras, in real cameras with an iPhone. So I, this could be the end of an era in the sense that the camera market is finally being subsumed by the smartphone. There will still be people like us, hobbyists, amateur photographers, etc. But if Amazon can't make this work, or if Amazon says it's not making enough money for something without a great deal of staff, then that means it's not making enough money. Because remember, we both know how Amazon affiliate links. If someone clicks through a link on your website or mine, they go to Amazon. If they don't buy the product, you still get a cut of what they buy. So Amazon, they were getting, um, Amazon was selling cameras and lenses, but they were also selling cat food and baby diapers. Yeah. Well, and this is going to sound weird, but I don't think that this says that Amazon couldn't make money off of it. I think it's that Amazon has such a large net, right? And they have found themselves hiring too many people during the pandemic. I think that's that's something that's happened even with a lot of uh, tech companies. But also, it's just not a priority. And when somebody from the top says, well, hey, we're going to – we need to cut costs, this is like a really easy place to do it because they're not pushing – uh, 50 pound bags of cat food on a regular basis. Yep. There is no subscribe and save for lenses and cameras. Oh my God, that'd there? be so dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't need a new 50 millimeter lens every three months, right? No, but maybe you would need, uh, oh my God, subscribe and save for prime lenses. Every three months, you just get like the next <laughs> the next focal length. It's like, well, I started with the 24 and now I've got Lens the, of the 35 and yeah. the 50 and oh, yeah. Okay. Well, this wasn't <laughs> the topic of our podcast episode and this has taken up about a third of the episode. What we wanted to talk about is AI, um, artificial intrepidness, <laughs> um, asinine intelligence. A lot of AI is – Artificial mansplaining when you look at the tech stuff in AI. But when you look at photography, there's a lot going on that we don't see. The, the reason we came up with this topic is I saw someone who mentioned maybe on Twitter, I had made a comment about how far Apple is behind AI compared to Google and Microsoft with uh, ChatGPT and uh, Bing's chat tool, which comes from OpenAI. Google's Bard chat tool, which just came out in a new version yesterday, I think. And Apple doesn't really have anything. They have Siri with like when I, I use dictation a lot to my iPhone because I don't like typing and it is not very accurate. It really isn't. So the idea came to me the other day I was on Twitter and I was talking about how Apple was far behind in text AI against Microsoft and Google. And this person responded, oh, but AI, they do all this AI. I can take a photo and with one tap, remove the background. And I thought, you know, you can do that with a dozen different apps. And Apple's not the first and they're not the best. 
But there is a lot of AI going on in photography, in the iPhone, in the Photos app. And we want to kind of talk about that. We don't really see a lot of what there is in AI because what's making the news now is what's called generative AI, where AI creates something. Where you ask a question, it gives you an answer. You give it a prompt and it creates a drawing or an image or something like that. But the AI that Apple's using in photography is different. Yeah. Well, so I saw a lot of these discussions too. And some of it comes out of a basic – what's a good way of saying this? Like the parsing of the question. So somebody says, well, Apple is way behind in AI. And that encompasses so many things. Apple has actually been doing lots of AI stuff for a long time. But it's not that outward-facing AI as much and I think when people are are looking at – especially because there's been so much news about it and you've got you know, new versions of mid-journey and all the different chat GPT variants and all of that, it looks like Apple's not doing anything because they haven't made any announcements. Apple hasn't done anything to wow us. They haven't put out a press release. They haven't released a new product because everybody wants a new product from Apple every single minute. So that must mean that they're not doing anything. Right. Well, evidence of that is autocorrect on the iPhone. It's still a disaster. Is autocorrect actually AI based? I guess it is, right? Yeah. It's attempting to figure out what you mean to type by what you've right, already right, typed. Right. So it's right? like when you when you play that game, just type the first word that comes up, tap the first word that comes up and see what you get. It's it's yeah. predictive text. So that's based on it's AI and it's based on the text you use because I know that proper names do show up more often in there that would not – my yeah. own name shows up in yeah. autocorrect, which wouldn't show up on yours unless you type my name a lot. I do. I, don't know I do. That. That's all I do is type your name a lot. <laughs> well, OK. That's a good point. I think some of this is that visibility of Apple. Yes, they have these technologies. Uh, but going back to photography – Obviously, Apple has been, I would say, a pioneer in terms of computational photography. The AI that's going on is extensive and deep and is very well developed. The key difference is you don't see that. What you see is I tapped the shutter button and I got a good picture. And that's different from having a text prompt that lets you – create some sort of image that looks uh, photorealistic or I'm going to ask the computer something and it's going to spit out a screenplay of how the smartphone saved the universe or whatever. Okay. So I think we need to look at two things. First of all, um, is computational photography AI based? So let's just take Apple's smart HDR, what they call smart HDR, and they're using a number of different um, captures and putting them together the way HDR works. If you take three photos at different exposures, you can put them together. And this doesn't seem to be an AI process. Actually, it is because what it's doing is – well, OK. Let, let's, let's take a half step back and, and define some terms. You have AI, which actually doesn't really apply. It's just what everybody calls it because uh, it's not actual artificial intelligence. But that's that's kind of nitpicking. Uh, what we're really talking about is machine learning and it's the algorithms and the software. They're making assumptions based on what it's learned. So in that case, when it's doing this uh, smart HDR, uh, yes, it's taking multiple exposures. But it's also using machine learning to look at a scene 
and determine what's in the scene. So it's recognizing it's the recognizing the subject. So it's seen that there's a a field of grass, and it knows that it's a field of grass, and so it might just in that area increase the green saturation for that to make it look a little bit better. Oh, a little bit a little grassier. bit grassier, yeah. <laughs> uh, and. You know, the, the same thing with, with skies and, and particularly with people. So it's using machine learning to identify that there's a person in the shot and therefore it might brighten the shadows a little bit because it knows that that is the subject that would otherwise be darker if you just left it the same way you shot, let's say, a raw file. So yeah, so th there's a lot of AI, there's a lot of machine learning going on even in that little pipeline. But the result is just, hey, look, there's a picture. And because the picture often matches what we see with our eyes in many ways. I hope so. You hope so. But so many times we look through like a regular camera and, you know, our, our eyes have yeah. such an expanded dynamic range compared to what the camera lens can see. So when we take a picture with our smartphone and it looks like what we see, we just assume, ah, it did that. But it used a whole bunch of machine, lang machine, <laughs> machine language, machine learning all these technologies to get to that point. Now, what I think people are objecting to is the fact that Apple doesn't seem to be doing anything visible on the other side. So you mentioned being able to – On the generative AI the generative side. generative AI, but even things like you mentioned uh, removing a background or there's, there's the new feature. I think we talked about it in a recent episode where you can – tap a subject on your phone and it selects that subject. It recognizes that this is a person. You can like copy and paste that somewhere else or whatever. And that is kind of a whizzy, after the fact, snazzy kind of uh, feature, which doesn't really have a whole lot of application. And sometimes it's not all that good, the result anyway, but it makes you think, oh, well, you know, okay, this this is cool. This is something that will allow me to uh, you know, do something that I couldn't normally do with like photo editing software. Or that you would have to do meticulous selecting and masking to be able to make yeah, that selection. Exactly. But you look at that, which doesn't have a whole lot of practical applications. And then you look at something else that says, I just want a picture of my cat dressed as Superman flying over the Seattle skyline. And it will generate a possibly photorealistic looking picture of that and it kind of makes you think, oh, well, Apple's way behind. And also because of what we know about Apple, they are probably not way behind but they don't release things in the sort of early iterative way that a lot of these companies are. Well, I think – so GPT in various forms has been around mm -hmm. for many years. Uh, OpenAI has gotten a lot of funding from Microsoft. They were a startup and Microsoft put, I think, $10 billion into them recently. Microsoft's going to roll these features into the Office apps coming soon. They call it Copilot. And they'll be able to draft emails and draft reports. And they keep talking about first drafts. They don't say this is going to do final text, but they say that this is going to give you the first draft that you can edit because Jeff is <laughs> laughing there because, yeah, you can't assume these are no. correct. You have to have someone well, to check. So, someone and, else and the reason I'm laughing is because you know that people are going to use these as first drafts because, I mean, yeah. just look at most office workers, right? So, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, someone I know suggested recently a new job title for business, the AI Sherpa, the person who takes the AI stuff and makes it into usable content, which is what people like you and I can do, you know, writers, yeah. editors. Um, this is the kind of thing that's needed. So editing is going to be an in-demand service. Anyway, back back to Apple. I don't know that they have the resources for the large language model that, say, Google has from scouring the web. These are, you know, huge data sets. So Apple may not be able to do this. Apple's dictation technology is based on uh, Dragon's dictation technology, which was first created, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. This goes back, uh, you know, a long time. And it's good, but it's not great. OpenAI's Whisper does a better job of speech to text than Apple mm. does by far. Apple depended on Dragon for this technology and for them to shift over to something else might not be that difficult because Whisper is actually easy to use. You can get an API and application programming interface and you can just roll it into an app. But of course, they need to make it work in real time. Anyway, it, it's, a, it's a process, but it shouldn't be that hard. Uh, the, the real question is, will Apple do anything in this direction or are they just going to sit it out and wait for the dust to settle and then be the ones to come out with something that works correctly? Well, looking at, at the history of Apple, I think there are two possibilities. I think one, what you just said, that because everything is very volatile right now and things are sort of mostly working but not working really well, you can get a whole lot of these generative text things that just have garbage information but it sounds right. Uh, and you know, Apple might be wanting to hold off and see if that kind of stabilizes. Uh, the other possibility I see is that, and and maybe this is the problem, or sorry, maybe this is Apple's problem. I should say, is uh, Apple likes to own its own stuff, and so if it can't, you know, say own Whisper, which I doubt that it. I mean I, I I don't think OpenAI would be even interested because even Microsoft approached them and invested 10 billion dollars but it's only to license it's not like they didn't buy OpenAI right I think that there's a a faction of Apple that is very much like look we have the best people in the world and we can do this and they're just going to like roll their own version and whether or not that's a better version is really up for grabs because, again, you look at something like Siri. Siri is certainly not the top you know, voice prompt uh, system out there. And I think Apple has, has suffered because they've just kept it all in-house. They've not really tried to, to expand it. And it, it sort of feels like, like the lag that we're talking about with Apple – may just as well be Apple's desire to own everything and build everything for the long term, but that may not actually be the best way to go about it. Apple may find out that they've missed the boat because they've been spending too much time and committing too much resources on making a car or making the operating system for a car. I kind of think they're working on the software, not that they're not going to actually sell yeah. an Apple car, but I think they devoted a lot of money to that. The the time and resources they put into building their spaceship headquarters is enormous and that shouldn't be underestimated yeah. either. 
that's something that was not in any way consumer facing. Um, it's a nice little panopticon to keep every Apple employee in one place and to keep them under surveillance <laughs> and all that. But it's not anything that's going to make them any money. And, and the other problem with Apple is that they're tied to an annual release um, structure where they very rarely release any new features uh, before they're announced at the Worldwide Developer Conference in June and then final release in the fall with the yeah. new operating system. So they're not going to come out in April and say, well, we've got this AI yeah. chat. Well, and, you know, it could entirely be that this was just a blind spot for Apple because allegedly, I mean, th there are heavy rumors that they're going to be some sort of a, a head-mounted uh, VR, AR thing this year. Again, massive amounts of research and development. And as we know about Apple, they say no to a lot of stuff. And it could be that this was one area that they said no to thinking, well, you know, it's not mature enough or, or whatever. And they could just be behind. I, I kind of doubt it. But well, on the tech side, what Microsoft has announced and what they've demonstrated is going to roll into the Office apps yeah. very soon. I don't know the exact dates. Apple has nothing like this for the iWork apps, Pages, Numbers, and Keynote, which may not have the adoption of Microsoft Office or Google Docs. But Google's rolling these features into Google Docs and Google Sheets as well. Um, this puts Apple in last place in terms of productivity. Yeah, apps. but but they just reintroduced mail merge back to uh, <laughs> numbers. I think <laughs> it's fair. I, we're pages. drifting from photography, but it's fair to say yeah. that Apple's productivity apps have. Uh, I like Pages and I use numbers Same. regularly, but they're just not. They're just they're just stodgy. Bring back Claris works. That's there what we, we go. want. Yeah, and hypercar. That's what we need. We need the old stuff like that. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. I think in photography, I can't imagine Apple doing generative AI in photography. What would be the point for them? Uh, because they're the 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 manufacturer of the best selling camera in the world. Would they do something like? The system where you take a photo of the moon and your photo is so perfect it looks like it was taken with a <laughs> telescope. And and this is this is like this thing that Samsung did, I think this is ridiculous. Basically, you point your camera at the moon and they give you a photo that they've downloaded from someone's website or that they've got a whole bunch of moon photos that they bought or whatever. It's like, on the one hand, why are you taking a photo of the moon with a smartphone, right? Because you know, it's not designed for that. But maybe like we had the harvest moon a couple of weeks ago. No, not the harvest moon, the hunter's moon. A couple of weeks ago, this pink full moon came up um, over the east and it was really spectacular. I didn't take any photos with my iPhone because I know they look ugly, but you might want to capture that particular moon, the color of the moon at that time of year. I don't think Apple will be, will be uh, implementing that sort of technology because it's – it's not exactly Samsung uh, putting an image in place of it. it like there is actually more to it, but it's still it's still disingenuous. So now I wonder about generative AI and stock photography. Um, I've already seen some examples where the 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 people in the photos are created yeah. by AI, so you don't have model releases. It would seem almost laughingly simple to put a product in front of a green screen, take a photo, then have the AI create all the background and adjust the lighting. And it seems like what's the point of stock photography anymore? Now, food photography is different. It has to be prepared and everything. But product photography, maybe 
the, all these product photographers are going to lose their jobs and they'll have to work as AI Sherpas in offices. That is definitely a concern among photographers. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. I guess it's time to move on to our snapshots. The timing of this works out really well. As we said, this isn't what we were going to talk about on this episode, but um, generative AI, it's it's just a thing. And so I want to point to um, Adobe's new offerings, currently a beta. It's called Adobe Firefly. You can request access to the beta and basically – this is Adobe taking generative AI and incorporating it into its large pipeline of products. I've been really curious to see what Adobe would do about this because um, obviously, you know, Adobe is is used by so many artists and illustrators, and there were a whole bunch of people who thought, well, now that I can just write a text and it will generate an image, why do I need an illustrator? And so what's interesting about this, I think they're doing a smart thing where they are incorporating this generative AI technologies into their apps. So for example, uh, you can apply uh, effects to text. So the, the image that they have here is you know some lettering, but the lettering looks like it's uh, filled with plants or something. And what's interesting is not that that generative AI artwork is going to be replacing artists, and that's a whole other conversation, but that artists can use these techniques and these technologies as a supplement to what they're doing. Maybe they're just making very quick drafts and then they finalize something that is the artist style or whatever. So um, if you go to firefly.adobe.com, there's all sorts of information about it and I'm really interested to see where this is going to go. Kirk, what do you have this week? I have a book. It is entitled To Photograph is to Learn How to Ooh. Die by Tim Carpenter. Now, that may sound a bit dismal, but it's riffing on something that Cicero said that is to philosophize is to learn how to die, or that Montaigne said philosophy is about learning how to mm. die. And I haven't, I've only read 20 or 30 pages. Someone in a Facebook group of men recommended this. It just came out. It's a philosophical musing about photography, about the, the point of photography, about why we photograph, what we expect to do with photographs. Um, this is one of the snapshots that on, on my music podcast, The Next Track, we talk about our next tracks instead of snapshots, the things we're going to listen to. So this is something I haven't read enough to really say a lot about it. It's There's a lot of philosophy in it. There are a lot of philosophers quoted, but it's not a difficult read. If you don't know philosophy, it's not that hard. It's not like you have to have read Nietzsche in mm -hmm. German or anything. Um, it's an interesting style of writing because – it's there are black texts which are the main texts, and then there are red texts which are quotes, and then there are blue texts which are the digressions. Uh, as I mentioned, the subtitle is an essay with digressions, where they're really just extended footnotes. I, I have long looked for books that talk about the philosophy of photography, and I've never really found anything. You know, Susan Sontag wrote some great essays in the 1970s, but they're more about. I would say the semiotics of, of photography and then the idea of why we photograph, what do we expect from photographs? What does a photograph represent? These are things that interest me. So I can report back maybe on the next episode when I've read through this book um, 
I think it might give some interesting insights into photography. So it's called Two Photographs is to Learn How to Die by Tim Carpenter. That sounds excellent. Just as long as when you finish the book, you're still alive. I'll do my best. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.